In Session with Dr. Farid Hulakul. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Uh, before I get started, um, I just have to acknowledge the unfortunate uh, occurrences of the past few days in the Israel-Palestine area and it's just been heartbreaking seeing so many videos and reports of just horrific actions and people being uh, treated in such a dehumanized way um, and I know this is such a complex issue and one that I have looked at it and, and know about it but not enough to give a a full formal take on it, but just I'm hoping for the most peaceful resolution possible. The heartbreaking thing is that whenever we have these types of conflicts, the people who pay the price most often are the peaceful civilians, just the people living there, and often um, even children. And those things are never okay. To harm children, uh, murder, rape, any of things are never okay from Whoever is doing it for whatever reason, it's not acceptable. And so I'm just hoping for whatever is the most peaceful uh, resolution to what is a unfortunately very complex problem that has been going on for quite a long time. So I, I won't say much more than that, but couldn't start the show without acknowledging what we've been seeing and, and how heartbreaking it is and just hoping for whatever is the best. Um, that being said, it's hard to transition away from something that serious to anything else, but I will, I'll do my best to uh, get on with the show, um, and we'll be going into the books of the week. This week's book, um, the title is Explaining Life Through Evolution by Prosanta Chakrabarty. Explaining Life Through Evolution by Prosanta Chakrabarty. I'll read that and share it with you next week on Monday's show. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is Right Kind of Wrong by Amy Edmondson, Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well. And Amy Edmondson is actually, um, she studied failure a lot, but also uh, she is known for coming up with the concept of psychological safety when it comes to uh, teams, groups, organizations, corporations, and that is actually a very powerful uh, indicator of how groups and teams and businesses will do. Uh, so I'll talk about failure, but first just um, she actually starts the book um, talking about her own failure, what felt like a failure that turned into something quite meaningful, uh, which is this research that she was doing that eventually led to this concept of psychological safety. She wanted to see if what her hypothesis was that uh, hospitals and teams of physicians and nurses and the staff working together, the ones that had more teamwork, I think was the indicator that she was looking at, better teamwork would have less medical errors. 
And so she said she had done research for a long time and eventually was looking at all the research to finally see if the data supported her hypothesis. And she found the exact opposite, that actually the groups with better teamwork had m more medical errors. And she was just puzzled and thought there must be some kind of mistake, something wrong with either the research or how it was collected or the statistics. But lo and behold, she found that that was actually true. And so she starts the book with this sense of a huge failure that she had and how it triggered all the things we can feel, which make us avoid failure and thinking about failure and acknowledging failure that, you know, maybe her career was over. I think at this time she was still a graduate student or early in her career that maybe she's not good at this stuff and, you know, all sorts of negative things about herself in a very global way of uh, defining herself by what she experienced here. Now, Eventually, this was the research that led her to recognize uh, the power of psychological safety because what she eventually learned after some time of thinking about it and it took some tinkering with what she had in the data or tinkering with looking at it in different ways was that it turned out it wasn't that the teams with better teamwork would uh, have more medical errors. They were reporting more medical errors, but it turns out that the groups with less teamwork were having more errors, but they were just reporting them way less often because they lacked this concept that then she developed based on this called psychological safety, that there was these cultures where it didn't feel okay or comfortable to share that you made a mistake. And so people would try to cover them up or ignore them or not take responsibility for them. And so it wasn't that less errors were happening, but that less errors were being reported, which isn't a good thing. Because you can imagine if someone uh, in a medical situation, they give the wrong medicine, they're doing something wrong. If people are afraid to speak up and report that something is not quite right, then the consequences can be literally life and death or cause at least great harm. And so these other teams where they had better teamwork and they actually had this concept of psychological safety, they would report errors more often because they were comfortable sharing things even when it was a, a small mistake or a near miss or uh, whatever it might be to work together to resolve the issue, which ultimately leads to better patient care and, and health outcomes. So this term psychological safety uh, it's, I think, a very important concept, but I even think the the phrasing of it to some people, even when I've talked about it on the show or when you hear it or people, how they hear this phrase, it sounds like, oh, psychological safety means that, you know, everything is is right, no one is wrong, you don't make anyone feel bad, it's such a safe environment. You know, people talk about triggers and safe spaces, and so they associate, I think, this term of psychological safety with this place where standards are low. Um, we don't care what happens, you know, everyone gets a trophy, that kind of a mindset. And it's not that at all. And she makes that very clear that psychological safety is not a space where standards are low. It's actually a space where standards are quite high and people are held accountable. And we are looking for mistakes because we know we're in a terrain where mistakes will happen and they need to happen and better to know about them than to not talk about them and ignore them until they become bigger problems. So in a, uh, a team that has psychological safety, people feel comfortable bringing up 
one, mistakes or failures, things if they've done wrong themselves, but also pointing out if they disagree or don't think something is quite right. And this is very important. It has been found to be very important in hierarchical type of systems, and especially, let's say, uh, in a, let's say, surgical staff, where the surgeon is considered the top, top person. And often you see that anyone below the surgeon might feel uncomfortable to challenge them in any way or to even point out something that, oh, I think this might be an issue or is there a problem here or I'm not so sure about this. You often find that there's a sense of to respect their authority, you should not challenge them uh, in any way, shape or form. So even if you see something blatant, you might not say anything and then it could turn into a bigger problem. Uh, this was even found in aviation where they found in certain cultures they were less likely to challenge the the co-pilot or the one who is a lower rank would have a harder time challenging the higher ranking pilot even if they noticed something was wrong so this sense of decorum and respect in some cultures it will be even harder to overcome so that even when we see something is not right we feel like we can't say anything about it so in a team it also has a culture and if you have a, t a culture where you can share something's not quite right, I think there's an issue, I made a mistake, this is much more likely to lead to better outcomes overall in almost any type of measure from uh, creativity and innovation to safety to whatever it might be. So uh, I really, the book itself, she does talk about psychological safety throughout, but that's not really just the book itself, it's more about failure. Um, but she does share how important psychological safety is uh, individually and in an organization if you want to allow for the good types of failure to happen. And so that's why the book is called Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well, because we know we've, we've heard this a lot, that failing is good, that you know you don't fail, you learn. And we hear a lot of rhetoric, which I think is good, that failure is a good thing. A necessary thing, a inevitable thing. It's something that if you're not failing at all, it means you're not trying things that are difficult enough or stretching yourself enough or trying to innovate enough. You're likely playing safe and playing not to lose rather pl than playing to win or to try to do something that is really special and really important. You're taking it too easy. So I think it's very good that we keep hearing this rhetoric of moving towards accepting failure, encouraging failure, and trying to shift our mindset away from seeing failure in this way. And even she talks about certain companies where they have failure parties, which sounds kind of funny, but where they'll actually celebrate a failure. Um, you know, it sounds like they're doing it in a joking way or in a mocking way, but it's actually not that. They're recognizing that, first of all, we want people to feel comfortable to uh, acknowledge if they have a failure. And also, sometimes when we recognize something doesn't work, even though that doesn't feel good, it still gives us some information. Okay, let's stop putting resources in this direction. Let's go in another direction. So we do see this overall, this movement towards failure being a good thing or fail fast, fail often. I forgot if that was Google or Facebook, but in tech, these types of mindsets. But what she does explain is that it doesn't mean all failure is good. And she differentiates which I'll, I'll get into later, different types of failure and how we want to be aware of the types of failure and how that might actually indicate if this is a, a good failure or a bad failure uh, or how to approach and assess what is going on. Because this is something we see so often that we see something unhealthy and the 
natural knee-jerk reaction is to think that going in the other direction and the other extreme is healthy. So if you had a, um, a mother or father who was extremely critical and very mean and harsh, you might think that that was really painful, which it was, and unhealthy. And so you then might become a parent who is overindulging and never wants to say no to their kid. My mom always said no to me. I'm never going to say no to my child, which is another type of unhealthy parenting. So what we will often find is that the opposite of something unhealthy isn't unhealthy, is not healthy either. It's also unhealthy. If you're too cold, you might feel like I want to get hot, but if you get too hot, that's not comfortable or safe or healthy either. So similarly, yes, it's very bad for us to think of failure in such a negative way and that we have to avoid it at all costs and never fail and never admit failure and all those things. That's not healthy at all. But then to think that now if you just failed, that's good. It's not necessarily the case either. And so she differentiates between three different types of failure, um, which are basic failures, complex failures, and intelligent failures. I'll get into those um, after the break. Uh, but she also says that there's three reasons or three things that she believes makes it hard for us to fail well or to acknowledge them. And those are aversion, confusion, and fear. So after the break, I'll talk about these three things that make it hard for us to fail well, aversion, confusion, and fear, and also the three types of failure, basic, complex, and intelligent. This is all from the book, Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well by Amy Edmondson. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Continuing the discussion on the book, Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well by Amy Edmondson. So uh, as I mentioned before the break, she she says there's three things or three anyway, emotions that we experience that make us avoid um, or makes it hard for us to fail well. Aversion, confusion, and fear. So aversion is just, uh, as it sounds, we're, we have an aversion towards failure, the way that it feels in the moment. And so it's like many things where we might know it's good for us long-term, having an uncomfortable conversation with a loved one, but we avoid because it doesn't feel good in the moment. Failure is the same thing. So and we have to be aware of that. We know we can talk about failure is good and this is great, but recognizing that when it hits us, it's unlikely it's going to feel good in the moment. We have to be ready for that. But because of that, we'll avoid failure both in doing things where we might fail or acknowledging failure or making a mistake. And so she talks about that in the book, how good we are and quick we are at uh, diverting pain or blame, I should say, away from us, that it wasn't my fault or mistake or hiding or covering that up. So because of that, we have an aversion to failure and we have to be um, very aware of that, that it's not going to feel good. And because of that, we will likely avoid it or try to avoid it as much as we can. And this to me brings up um, the concept of, of distress tolerance, which I think is one of the most, the biggest components, one of the biggest components of our mental health and living a good life. How much can you tolerate feeling bad or things that feel bad? This doesn't mean in some kind of masochistic way where you want to suffer, you want to hurt yourself, but actually how much can I allow myself or tolerate feeling bad knowing that in so much of life and in so much that leads to growth and so much that leads to a good life, I have to be willing to tolerate not feeling good in the moment 
and often choosing the thing that doesn't feel as good in the moment because it will pay dividends down the line and be better for me long term. Or in other situations, how long can I tolerate a painful emotion um, without quickly going to fix it in some way? Because usually those quick fixes are unhealthy for us. Um, drugs, alcohol, or other or, or behaviors that are compulsive or distracting ourselves or avoiding the feeling, they are not good for us. But often if we can't tolerate feeling bad, we will be more likely to turn to those things. So failure also falls under that umbrella that can we tolerate this thing that doesn't feel good and we have to be willing to uh, face and embrace it when it comes about, um, knowing it might not feel good, but that we can handle that. The second feeling she brings up is confusion, which is, or she describes as being confused about the different types of failure, that not all failures are the same. So if you make a mistake because you were careless, that's one type of failure. Um, but if you, for example, are trying something new, you've never played piano before, and you start to play piano and you miss notes, those could be looked at as failures, but you have to expect that you're in this new territory. And because of that, failure is expected and has to be there. You can't learn how to play a new instrument without making mistakes, without getting it wrong sometimes. So she says that we often think that all failure is the same and all of it is bad, not realizing that they can be different. And actually the opposite is true. As I was saying before, we might think, well, now all failure is good. So no matter what I did, if I failed, good for me. And that's not uh, the case either, which I'll get into when we discuss the different types of failure. And the last one is fear. Uh, and here she's talking about fear of uh, interpersonal rejection or how people are going to look at me for failure, the stigma and social rejection that come about. And so there is a legitimate feeling there. Um, you know, often we'll talk about things like, oh, who cares what people think or don't worry about what people think. And really what we mean or the way I would define that is that we tend to care too much about what people think. So it could be good to care less than you do. And that's probably going to be true about everyone. So the same thing, yes, if you keep failing, if you do poorly at something, it doesn't mean people are going to like that or they're going to have a good response to it. But if you think that you should never fail and if people ever see that, they're going to see you negatively, you're wrong about that too. And we do see that when people are um, forthcoming about their fears, we tend to actually respect them more, more than if they try to present a perfect and polished image that I've never made a mistake or I never got things wrong, we actually tend to respect far more people that have made success in some ways, but also have talked about their failures and openly will embrace those. So that fear comes up of rejection and that stigma, but it tends to be far less than we imagine it will be. So as I mentioned, there's also three types of failures that she defines or describes. And she does uh, say this earlier and also later in the book that, um, you know, there, these are categories, but like any category categorization that we make, not everything will fall neatly into these three categories. So we have to be aware of that, but it can provide a framework that allows us to, to think about things or to think about the different types of failures we might experience. So the first level or type of failure is a basic failure. And so the example she uses for this is a vehicle assembly line where the knowledge of how things work is undeveloped or sorry, well-developed and the uncertainty is low. So she says there's these different things you have to look at when we're 
trying to understand different types of failures, if things are consistent, the context is consistent, and the knowledge is well-developed and the uncertainty is low, this is like a basic failure. So usually it's things like not paying attention or being careless, or sometimes when we can do something in our sleep, we're more likely to not be paying as much attention, so we might make a mistake. So, you know, you're you're pouring coffee and you're not paying attention and you miss how you pour it. Or uh, on the assembly line, someone is doing a repetitive task and doesn't pay attention that something is a little bit different and might make a mistake. So those are basic failures. And she talks about some ways that we can be mindful and try to prevent those. The next level is complex failures. And her example for that is a surgical operating room. So here the state of knowledge is well-developed, but there's also a vulnerability to unexpected events. Uh, and the uncertainty is medium. So we can imagine in a surgical operating room, they have certain expectations. The surgeon and the rest of the team have likely done many similar surgeries before, but at the same time, unexpected things can come up. And in a complex failure, usually it's a bunch of different factors coming together that lead to the, the failure. And she actually talks about how in many hospitals, um, because there's this model of Swiss cheese that has become popular in describing what happens in hospital settings, you'll see people have a uh, kind of some figure, a model of, of Swiss cheese. And the Swiss cheese model is basically that there's holes, you know, in the cheese of Swiss cheese, but in general, it stays together. But if those holes line up just right, unfortunately, then you'll have, you know, the cheese will no longer hold together or breaks apart in a way. And so that's how a complex failure works. Different things might go wrong and it could be okay as long as it's not this type of perfect storm where things line up and then we end up with a more significant failure or a complex failure. So here there are more moving parts and there's some uncertainty. And that leads to these types of what she calls complex failures. Now, the third one, which even by the name of it, you'll see is probably the one we want the most. But this is the, um, the one that we want to make sure we try to engage in more frequently. You know, the basic failures and the complex failures also will happen inevitably in life. But the novel um, situations create what she calls intelligent failures, that the possibility is there. So here, the... Uh, example is a scientific laboratory where they're trying to do research into something that is kind of new, where the state of knowledge is limited. We know some things, but we're trying to learn something new, something that isn't known yet. And so because of that, the uncertainty is high. There's a high degree of uncertainty. We don't know. We're trying something new. She, for example, shares, um, it's similar to surgical operating room, but this is about trying to do open heart surgeries or surgeries on a, a living heart and how this was extremely difficult. And the pioneers in that field, they sadly failed a lot. Um, but the alternative was they had patients that were uh, dying uh, of the illnesses. They had the def heart defects or whatever it was they're dealing with. So they really had no better option, but they were really trying to save lives and often they failed. So as painful as those are, those can be considered, if done correctly, an intelligent failure where they're in this new territory and they're trying their best to make an innovation. But of course, there will be failures along the way. And so this is the type of failure we want to be more uh, going towards trying to create, meaning that we want to innovate or have space for that and also look at 
what is it that we're doing, the task at hand, and what type of failure it is, but can we move towards and strive for these types of intelligent failures? And she describes four key attributes of intelligent failure. So the first one, as I was saying, it takes place in a new territory. So it doesn't mean, of course, nothing is known or it's totally new, but it's a new type of innovation or iteration of something that might exist, but something that is a new um, territory. The second is that there is some uh, potential for uh, to advance toward a desired goal. So for example, in the case of open heart surgery, there clearly is this desired goal to save and prolong lives of people who are dealing with heart defects and heart issues in ways that was not possible, and they wanted to come up with that. So there's clearly this opportunity uh, to go towards a desired goal. Next is you, it is informed by available knowledge. So it's not that you just start hacking away at the problem without studying it first. This is why it's important not to just think any failure is an intelligent failure just because you're trying something new. Well, you have to do your research and homework of what is known about this topic. We're going into a new direction potentially, but what is already known that could help inform us to um, make the best informed decision based on a hypothesis uh, from this available knowledge. And lastly, you make it as small as it can be. So meaning that if you are trying something new, you don't just try it on a million people or you don't try it in some very high stakes way if you can. You test it in the smallest way possible so that if it goes wrong, the smallest harm is done, but you still get enough information to see if it's working or not. So it's very important to see that, uh, you know, not all failure is good, or we want to be aware of how to make it good and not just think that all failure is equal and try to have these types of intelligent failures. And so a lot of the book describes how organizations uh, help to mitigate, uh, first of all, encourage the intelligent failures, but also mitigate other types of um, of failures. For example, the basic failures, she talks about the Toyota line, uh, Toyota factories, where anyone on the, the floor, anyone who's working in a factory can pull this plug, this cord, that then would stop everything. And it could be anyone who does that. And they're encouraged to do it if they notice something. And if it, they pull the cord and it turns out everything was okay, they don't get punished or blamed for that. They're still encouraged that they try to uh, be mindful and vigilant to see that nothing goes wrong. Um, also in certain companies to encourage intelligent failures, as I was saying, uh, people are encouraged to talk about what didn't work, what went wrong. Even she'll talk about organizations where, you know, someone shows up and talks about how good they were doing. And then the, the person tells them, well, um, but what didn't work? That's not good. We obviously hired you because you're good at what you do, but we want to know what you're having a hard time with so we can deal with it and, and and address the issue. And so here again, it's that theme of psychological safety where you don't feel afraid to speak up and you don't afraid to, to make a mistake that you will lose your job for making one mistake. Doesn't mean the standard isn't there, but it means that there is space for error because error is inevitable. And actually you'll see certain organizations where if you don't report your own errors or mistakes or someone else's, you actually could be trouble in trouble for that. So if you do something wrong and you don't bring it up, uh, that's a problem. And usually our reaction is exactly the opposite. If we do something wrong, we're hoping we can cover it up or hide it or make sure no one sees it. But we'll see in these really um, 
innovative and advanced organizations, they'll do the opposite. If you saw something wrong and you didn't say it, you can get in trouble. And I think that actually makes sense. Imagine if you are uh, in a hospital and you see that they're about to administer a drug that's harmful to this child. You would make sense that if you don't say something, you'd get in trouble. We want you to say something. So again, you need a certain level of that psychological safety. I'm allowed to speak up. I'm not going to be in trouble for speaking up. Um, but in a healthy organization, you would have that space to do so. Um, she talked about, you know, different mindsets you could have. And one that I really liked is choose learning over knowing. Choose learning over knowing. And this makes a lot of sense in, when we recognize in general, we don't, we think we know a lot of things. And even um, I've worked on some topics for a book and for lectures and the, t the title I've come up with is Lessons I'm Learning, because the way I look at it is that uh, I'll talk about things that from being a therapist, from reading the books, doing the show, and just life in general, things that I have learned, but in a way I'm still learning them. It's not something I've just mastered or I know for sure, but I'm still in the process of learning. So that really resonated with me, this mindset of choose learning over knowing. Um, you know, she shared how... There's these you know, pilots and people who are so experienced and they still consider themselves learning uh, related to things like psychological safety. She shared a, a pilot who, before every flight, tells the crew, I've never done a perfect flight and I won't do it today again, that I'm going to make some mistakes. I'm not going to get things all right. And I, that, first of all, encourages the group to be more OK, even if they make a mistake to bring it up, but also to challenge him or to share if they see something that is not good. And so that's help create this and foster this environment of psychological safety. Uh, not only will you not be punished for bringing something up, you'll likely be rewarded or acknowledged for bringing up an issue or problem that you see. And lastly, um, she, uh, I'll share this. Maybe you've seen this yourself, that in this attitude and spirit of promoting failures, of moving away from this type of uh, everyone is perfect or we have to present ourselves as perfect or else you're looked at as weak or incompetent. And we unfortunately are exposed to that a lot, especially social media is doing that even more. We just see these uh, edited photos of people and only select things that they want to share of themselves. And that's how, and then we compare our real selves to these edited, curated versions of other people. And we, um, not surprisingly, don't feel very good about ourselves because of that. But similarly, in the professional world, we see that as well, where people who are successful, we see their successes much more than your, their failures. And there's this new trend of people having failure CVs. Uh, a CV is a curriculum vitae, like a kind of like a resume or your life's work. And that's common in academia or in a lot of different jobs. And so now some people are compiling it compiling and even putting on the, the internet or publicly their failure CVs, meaning here's a list of all the things I did wrong. So um, some professor put, you know, every time he got rejected from a, his paper got rejected or he didn't win an award or whatever it was, listed them all and it was many things just to make people more comfortable with this idea of sharing their failures and realizing that everyone has them. And even if you want to have a successful life and career, you're going to have to face many failures along the way. And so we actually should be more okay and proud of them and also can make other people less afraid to risk to make, you know, do things that might lead to a failure 
but to recognize that it's really much more around us than we recognize. And so I think that would be good if we contribute to this culture of it's okay to, to fail, it's inevitable, uh, making mistakes is inevitable. If you never make a mistake or never fail, it likely means you're not trying things that are hard enough or stretching yourself or going for it in ways that are important. And so if we value never being wrong, we're going to encourage people to keep playing it safe. But if we encourage failing intelligently, then people will feel more comfortable to take those risks and challenges and less afraid um, to make a mistake or less afraid that they should avoid those things that they might fail at. One just last thing that's not really about the book, but just a funny moment. Um, I was reading part of the book and someone was working on something uh, nearby for me and they uh, I heard a large, not that loud of a crash, but a crash. And I was just reading a part that said making it okay to let people say they made a mistake. And so the person didn't say anything, but I'm like, let me go ask them if some, everything was okay. But in a way that I didn't want them to feel bad, but just so I stayed informed. And I went and they told me what happened. It wasn't a big deal, but it was this funny moment where what I was reading was, was right in front of me. And normally I might've not said anything or waited to see if they came to me, but I wanted them to know. I'd rather know if something's not going right and we would deal with it and it would be okay rather than avoid it or ignore it. So sometimes I have these moments where something in the book is immediately relevant. It's usually relevant, but immediately relevant. So funny moment there. Um, but I really did enjoy this book because I think this theme of psychological safety and failing is an important one, one that also I personally have struggled with of being afraid to fail or being um, having perfectionism, which she talked about in the book. And so how harmful those things, I've seen it in my own life and trying to resist that and go away from that. And I think it could be really important for, for most people to see that for themselves. So uh, the book again is Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well by Amy Edmondson. Let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Tonight was talking about the book Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well by Amy Edmondson. And for this last segment, I wanted to share a recent experience I had that involved lots of failing, hopefully sometimes well, probably sometimes not so much. But I uh, took an improv comedy class that started about two months ago. And it was something I wanted to do uh, for a while. Um, I actually wanted to do it during the pandemic, but saw that the classes were over Zoom, and I didn't think that would be a good way to do improvisational comedy. So I waited and then kind of forgot about it and then started it recently. Now, maybe most of you are aware of what improv comedy is, but improvisation, that word meaning that it's um, created in the moment on the spot, it's unscripted. So that is essentially the, the basis of improv comedy is that you are however many people making a scene, but you don't know what the scene is. Often it starts with a suggestion from the audience or from someone. And then based on that, you just let yourself, you know, create a world together and um, it can be quite fun and funny, but it also can be uh, nerve wracking or make you very anxious, especially to start. And so to begin with, I remember the first day I went to class, I was um, a bit nervous and also excited, kind of like that first day of school feeling. But one thing I enjoyed was trying something new. I'd done things similar to it and lots of things in life can be related to that, but to actually take a course on improv comedy was something I hadn't done. 
And that was something I was happy and excited about too, to start as a novice at something, which also means uh, this part doesn't usually feel as good that you have to be ready to not be good at something. Uh, as I was saying in a previous segment, if you're going to learn a new instrument, you have to be ready that at the beginning, you're going to be very bad at it. You're, you can't be good at something new like that. And that could be tough. And for a lot of people, with, if there's especially some sense of perfectionism or have a hard time not doing well at something, they won't even start something new like that. So can you tolerate, as I was talking about before, that distress tolerance, this feeling of being bad at something? It can be helpful to reframe that, of course, if I'm trying something new like this, I I should be bad at it. It makes sense to be bad at it, or you have to be. That is just required to, to learn this new skill. So that's one thing we have to be ready for, and that's something that I felt I was telling myself that, that I was helping myself, um, reminding myself that if I'm struggling or have a hard time, that's expected. It has to be there. Uh, and going uh, even a step before that, um, to do something like improvisational comedy, you have to you know, be in the moment, which is very important, and be on the spot and trust your instincts. And that can be tough to just go with the flow. What comes to your mind and say that thing? It really is an experience of uh, creativity where you try to turn off your judgmental mind and let your more creative mind make associations and play and then express that play with your partner or partners in the scene and then see where it goes. But if you try to judge it or think your way through it, it's not going to work. It has to be a lot more feeling and in the moment than thinking things through and analyzing what to do next. The more actually you plan and prepare it, the worse it's going to go because maybe your partner goes in another direction and if you are fixed in your direction, it's not going to go well. So what's important is to have that sense of psychological safety that I was talking about. And I think the teacher I had, um, Marissa Strickland, she was great. And the classmates also probably stemming from her creating this culture, but it was a very supportive environment. I think we were all nervous. We were all in the intro level class, but being in this class together where we we're all new, I think helped create this environment of, Hey, we're all new at this. We know it's you know, we got to get a little bit silly, have to stretch. It might not be comfortable, but let's let's be encouraging and warm. And that it felt that way from the beginning, that we were all very um, attentive to one another, but very supportive also that if someone said something, we tried to, you know, laugh and be in a more laughing mood to give that encouragement and support and clapping for each other and having that energy. All of those things making it a bit easier to break out of our comfort zones to go into something that is a bit challenging or not easy um, to do for all of us. And that was, that was really good. And so I, I did have this experience of, of failing often. And uh, as I was talking about the book, that aversion, even though I tried to have this mindset that this is something new and also reminding myself, this is the class. doesn't matter. You know, you're performing in front of your classmates. This is not some kind of performance or anything you're worried about getting judged on or assessed on just, you know, have fun. It's okay. It still wouldn't feel good. You know, you would have a scene and you would get either, I would get stuck or not say something very funny, or I tried to say something funny, but it didn't quite make sense. And it wouldn't feel great in the moment. So I would definitely feel that, that feeling. Um, thankfully it wouldn't sting too deep most of the time. And I was able to move on from it, but I did have that, that experience that the failures were, were tough and they weren't 
always easy to experience. And it would sometimes give me this feeling of, well, maybe I'm just not good at this. What was I thinking? Which is a common thing people experience. She mentions in the book, imposter syndrome. And this is something we often feel. You might have just one failure or a few failures in a row. And it could be easy for us to think, oh, who am I thinking to do this? Or I'm not good enough at this thing. Um, when it often is not the case, it's just that failures happen, mistakes happen. And especially when you're new at something, it's going to happen even more. So that experience of it was also quite good to go through that, to feel those failures, to have those moments when you try something and it doesn't work. And then also having moments where you try something and it does work. And this is where, when we're talking about intelligent failures, when you're doing something that's innovative in the sense, yes, improvisational comedy has been around for a long time. So that's on new territory, but each scene is like a a new terrain where you're creating something with the other person and you don't know exactly where it's going to go. It could turn out lots of different ways. So if it does fail, that's okay. That's going to be expected that sometimes it won't turn out so well. So very grateful for the experience, for the teacher, the classmates. And then we got to do a class show um, a few days ago where we got to perform and that was fun and also uh, obviously made us a bit nervous, but good to get that performance. Um, and just wanted to conclude today sharing that experience. But the reason for that is, one, I actually really think a lot of people should try improvisational comedy, do some improv, take a class. It doesn't matter if you have any intention to pursue it at all, just as a life experience, um, something that will help us stretch. But I also think that life, the more we live it in the improv type of state, the better, um, meaning that we are in the moment, not just saying something scripted. We're trying to, and by script, I don't mean, of course, we have a script. We sometimes just say things we're supposed to say or we think we're supposed to say or the quote unquote right thing to say. But if we're in the moment, we have much more genuine and real and meaningful interactions rather than if we say just a thing we think we're supposed to say. So I think that part of it um, is really good. And so I encourage people to take an improv class if you think, oh, it's so hard for me, I, I'm so bad in the moment, even better, then you'll, you'll get even more out of the class. I really think it's something that almost anyone would benefit from. But in the, the last note here is that just a reminder to try new things, take a new class, whether it's online, by yourself, in person, whatever it is, try something new. I think it's such a great experience to start something at the bottom and hopefully make your way up a bit and go through that experience of it. But just a, a reminder and encouragement, try a new thing, a new hobby, a new experience. Be ready to not be good at it and to struggle and to have challenges. But remember that that's where you're supposed to be. You're supposed to not be good at it when you start. That's the expectation. But the, the hardest part is just starting and, and keeping yourself going. So I just had such a great experience in that class. I hope you will consider an improv class, but also just consider trying a new thing, a new hobby or instrument or whatever it is, and giving it a shot. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. A big thank you to Ghazale here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Jalakwi. Zan Zendegi Azadi. <laughs>